Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And uh, boy, so much going on right now with regard to Bill Barr. You have this uh, ultra-Trumpy judge, Naomi Rao, R-A-O, I'm assuming it's pronounced Rao. She was a Trump appointee, in fact, a recent Trump appointee, along with a uh, George Bush appointee over the objections of a Barack Obama appointee. This is a three-judge panel in the D.C. Circuit saying that, uh, you know, if Bill Barr does not want to prosecute Michael Flynn, even though he clearly committed crimes, in fact, arguably, according to Judge Sullivan, committed treason, sold out his country, that's Bill Barr's prerogative. Uh, You know, the courts don't have to hear the case if he chooses not to bring it. And, uh, you know, the courts can't second-guess the prosecutor. Now, there's a certain kind of twisted internal logic to that, but where this goes next is, is going to be very, very interesting. Uh, in all probability, it'll go to all, I believe it's 11 members of the D.C. Circuit Court. This was just a three-judge panel. And uh, all 11 judges will decide whether that's the case. And then the Supreme Court can choose to either leave that intact or pick it up. But I'm guessing this is not the end of this. At the same time, we have two prosecutors from the Department of Justice uh, preparing to testify uh, before Congress in the next few hours. This is truly mind-boggling that they were, uh, you know, one of them saying that they were told to go easy on, on Roger Stone. Now, that was Michael Flynn we were talking about just a minute ago. Michael Flynn, who was being paid a half a million bucks by the government of Turkey to alter U.S. positions with regard to Turkey. Keep in mind, Jeffrey Berman, the SNDY Southern District of New York prosecutor who was just fired by Bill Barr, was looking into this bank, this Turkish bank, that Donald Trump, according to John Bolton's book, had told President Erdogan of Turkey I'll get rid of that prosecution once I get rid of Obama's people and put my people into the Southern District of New York. He explicitly said that, according to Bolton's book. So you had Mike Flynn, who was working for Turkey, who was being paid by Erdogan at the same time that he was Trump's national security advisor, which, of course, is a crime. It's a felony. So you've got that case. That's that's the one that, you know, this, these two Republican appointees. By the way, this, this is why Mitch McConnell has been on a screaming tear to put as, money, as many of these uh, young right-wing lawyers, many of them with no trial experience whatsoever, many of them never even argued a case in a courtroom, on the federal bench with lifetime judicial appointments so that they can do the bidding of the oligarchs who own Mitch McConnell and of which Donald Trump is one. 
So anyhow, that's the Mike Flynn situation. Then with Roger Stone, you've got Aaron Zielinski, who was a U.S. attorney, excuse me, who was a prosecutor in the DOJ. And John Elias is also going to testify today. Zelensky is going to testify that the people in his office, his supervisors, and the big question is whether he will name his supervisors at the Department of Justice, were, quote, afraid of Trump. Actually, the, the quote was afraid of the president. I'm reluctant to refer to him that way because I don't consider him my president. I, you know, he did not win a majority of votes and he has not behaved like a president. But in any case, uh, the, the, uh, so, so you've got uh, Zelensky who is going to be saying, and it isn't ironic, you know, he, he uh, sort of shares a last name with the Ukrainian president. He is going to be saying, we went easy on Roger Stone, the old Nixon operative who is now the Trump operative, who it turns out now that we've seen the unredacted portions of the Mueller report, Roger Stone was the connection between the Russian oligarchs who handled the, the hacking of Hillary Clinton's emails and handed them off to WikiLeaks between those folks, the WikiLeaks Russian folks, and Donald Trump himself personally. Roger Stone is the one who could put Trump in prison. Who demonstrates that Trump committed treason. So Trump, at the very least, is probably terrified of Roger Stone. So Trump is saying, go easy on Roger Stone. And these guys are like the prosecutor Zelensky. Here's what he said in his prepared remarks. He says, quote, I was also told that the acting U.S. attorney was giving Stone such unprecedentedly favorable treatment because he was afraid of the president. We were told by a supervisor that the U.S. attorney had political reasons for his instructions, which our supervisor agreed was unethical and wrong. However, we were instructed that we should go along with the U.S. attorney's instructions because this is, quote, not the hill worth dying on and that we could, quote, lose our jobs if we did not toe the line. And this all followed a 3 a.m. tweet by Donald Trump saying that the uh, proposed, uh, I believe it was eight years in prison for Roger Stone, was, was uh, he says, we cannot allow this miscarriage of justice. And hours later, senior Justice Department officials were saying, okay, we are dancing to the tune of Donald Trump. My word's not theirs. Zelensky and uh, three other colleagues withdrew themselves from the Stone case. One of them, Jonathan Kravis, actually left the Department of Justice. And the guy who filed new sentencing recommendations, who did Bill Barr's dirty work, who did Donald Trump's dirty work on behalf of Roger Stone, was uh, U.S. Attorney Timothy Shea, just for the record. The other guy who's going to testify, uh, Mr. Elias, is going to testify, John Elias is going to testify that uh, Bill Barr told him to go hard on car companies that were going along with California's emission rules. That part of it is getting almost no publicity. This is obviously in behalf of the fossil fuel billionaires. And then also to, to, to trash the marijuana, the, the legal marijuana industry, by subpoenaing them and forcing them to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on legal fees to produce millions of documents. You know, in my opinion, impeaching Barr won't just protect us from corrupt senior law enforcement officials. It'll also strengthen our protection against this dangerous autocrat, Donald Trump. Trump famously said, where's my Roy Cohn? Well, he's got it in Bill Barr. 
And as we head toward the November election and then the January 20th installation of hopefully a new president, Donald Trump becomes more dangerous by the day. He has learned how to use the levers of power in the White House. He's applying them in increasingly appalling ways and corrupt ways. He's transferred over $2 trillion of your and my tax money to, his, to himself and his corrupt oligarch billionaire friends. He's corrupting the flow in our, of money in our country. He's also corrupted the flow of justice, of criminal justice in our system. Bill Barr should certainly be impeached and then prosecuted for the very clear crimes he's committed while in office. But more important, he needs to be impeached as soon as possible to remove from Donald Trump the power to, quote, help my friends and punish my enemies. A power that's the hallmark of a dictator. Impeaching Bill Barr is an absolutely essential step to saving our republic and restoring American democracy. You can find that rant over, by the way, by the way over at buzzflash.com. But that's what's going on right now. Bob in San Jose, California. Hey, Bob, what's up? Well, I was thinking about this Twelfth uh, Amendment thing. Suppose the uh, mm-hmm. Florida and Texas pull off this thing. You say we can't certify our, our election results, and the whole thing right. gets thrown into the House of Representatives. And let's say thirty plus states, thirty around it, just thirty states say we want Donald Trump. Right. All it takes you is twenty six, actually. But yes. Well, yeah. But let's say thirty of them do it. So, so now mm-hmm. Trump gets reelected. What do you think would happen to the general populace? I think they would be in the streets in seconds, and it would make the the protesting that's happening now uh, be like nothing. I mean, I think this. Would I agree. Be, this would be. This I agree, would be and I and I also think. War. I think you may well be right, Bob, and I think that given Bill Barr and Donald Trump's propensity for state violence and, and love of state violence, apparently, we would have a very, very, very ugly situation. I think, frankly, Trump is pointing in this direction, you know, trying to prompt the, the Boogaloo Boys and all these other people out there. I'm just very, very concerned about that. Bob, thanks for the call and, and uh, you know, for pointing that out. This is a huge issue, and it's getting absolutely no coverage in the press. And uh, it's not some wacky conspiracy theory. This is real stuff. Leslie in Central Square, New York. Hey, Leslie, what's on your mind today? Trying to save the country. We don't have a free press. We're getting almost 50% of the people brainwashed. There's only one way to get rid of that is the fairness doctrine and take that law out that Bill Clinton put in. We got to get our free press back, or this is going to—you're just going to keep gaining and gaining, and this country's going to be right winger. You and everybody else in it. It's just going to keep going and going and going. It's got to yeah, be stopped. I'm with you, Leslie. Free press back. The free press. Yeah, we need to bring back the ownership rules that were blown up in the 1996 Telecommunications Act. And, and I yeah. think that the Fairness Doctrine would be a good thing. It doesn't require that if your TV or radio station carries a, a conservative, you have to also carry a liberal. What the Fairness Doctrine required was basically news at the top of the hour that was actual news because you had to pay for your use of the public airwaves by, quote, programming in the public interest. I remember when the Fairness Doctrine got blown up. I was driving down the, down the Autobahn in Germany and listening to American Forces Radio, and they talked about it. And 
And then, uh, and I thought, oh, this is not going to be good. And then a few uh, month or so later, I again, I was out driving and I was listening to American Forces Radio and they were talking about how CBS had just uh, taken their news division and put it under their vice president of entertainment programming. And I thought, okay, that's it. We're toast. And sure enough, here we are. Thank you very much for the call, Leslie. I, I spot on. Russ in St. Petersburg, Florida. Hey, Russ, what's up? Uh, the reason why I called is I purchased your books, the Supreme Court, the voting, and the Second Amendment, and I just finished uh, the Supreme Court one, and that thing is mm-hmm. awe-inspiring. I mean, it's just eye-opening. The things that these criminals did, and they're still walking around and making policy. Nobody's doing it. Yeah, you can't. I'm sorry, Russ. You can't use language like that on the air. Um, <laughs> John in Redmond, Washington. Hey, John, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I just wanted your thoughts on maybe changing the 25th Amendment. So we're not in a in a conundrum like we are now where you've got Trump doing what he wants to do and his, and his crony as the cabinet. They're, they're never going to remove him. And are, is, there, is there any creative way to maybe have outsiders from the two other branches as part of that process? So it's, if we have another tyrant like this, it's more reasonable solution to remove the person. Yeah, Trump is a constitutional officer. Um, he can only be removed within the framework provided for by the Constitution, um, which is the 25th Amendment or an election. And yeah. I'm not sure we want to change that, John. Just if you, one of the moments for me of a real revelation with regard to this was uh, probably about 10 years ago when I started really digging into the, into the Great Depression and the New Deal. And I read several biographies of FDR. Probably the best one was the biography of Francis Perkins out, that's out there. And there were Republicans who were actually trying to get him removed. They were saying he's a tyrant. He's doing things that are unconstitutional. The Supreme Court was ruling against him, in fact. And they said, this is how tyranny comes to America. He was doing things by executive order. He was doing, you know, he, uh, uh, Roosevelt was. And they really wanted to get him out of office. And they couldn't. And I'm concerned that if the next Democratic president decides to repudiate Reaganism and revive Keynesianism, take us back to America pre-1980, when the middle class was growing and the billionaires weren't doing so well, that if we put into place some alternative, outside of the 25th Amendment or the election, alternative way to remove that president from office, the billionaires will figure out a way to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. And the other question is, you know, just think, ask yourself, what would Republicans have done during the Obama presidency if they had the power to do it? They would have removed him from office in a second, in a heartbeat. And, yeah. and their constituents would have applauded them for it because, you know, because, uh, you know, that it was all about, oh, my God, there's a black man in the White House, at least over with the uh, for many of the Republicans. So, yeah, I think we have to be very, very careful, John. I guess I guess if you have that a, a more pre-vetting process of the candidate, you know. Yeah. Well, and that's yeah. the that's the job and the obligation of the media. This is the whole reason why the First Amendment, you know, carves out the media as essentially the fourth estate of government, the fourth branch of government. And the media has failed its job here. And you know, we have Les Moonves on tape admitting it, saying, "Hey, Donald Trump is terrible for America, but he's great for CBS. He's making us money." And that's, you know, that's what we need to call out. John, thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? On the subject of bullying, I have a really good movie recommendation for you. 
It's a documentary that just premiered this weekend on HBO called Bully, Coward, Victim about Roy Cohn. And, you know, besides, yeah, yeah, besides Trump's KKK loving father, Roy Cohn taught Trump everything he knows. And and Cohn, of course, started his career as a right-hand man to Joe McCarthy, who used fear and bullying to rule over the Red Scare era, demonizing communists until finally people said enough is enough. And Tom, the parallel Mm -hmm. to McCarthy has been Trump's rise with white nationalist rhetoric and, and the demonization of immigrants. And hopefully finally people are starting to say enough is enough so yeah it's it's a really good film to uh see you know get into the psychology that drives trump but um alan minsky has a really good piece a common dreams title if you want joe biden to govern more like fdr than jamie diamond vote for bernie sanders and i would add to that tom by urging people in those two states save to also vote for the progressives like charles booker jamal bowman and mondaire jones not only is Booker a true progressive, unlike his opponent, Amy McGrath, but he's polling better against Mitch McTurtle in November. Tom, do you think, um, you know, Booker not only is better politically, but also gives us the best chance in November? I, I don't know, Jeff. I, I'm, you know, I'm not a Kentuckian, and it's hard to handicap races in states where you don't live and you don't read the local media every day. I read the Oregonian, or at least of the app, every night. But I think it is going to be a, an interesting measure of the power of progressive ideas versus, you know, institutional uh, DLC or, or DNC rather. Uh, support and cash. And I'm wondering if, uh, you know, Kentucky's efforts to limit the ability of people to vote, particularly in Louisville, is is in any way related to this race or if it's just coincidental to it. It seems uh, more than coincidental. Yeah, it really does. I mean, you know, I I, I do think that McConnell would probably rather run against McGrath. And, um, you know, because Booker is tapping into the uh, Black Lives Matter and, uh, you know, the the movement in the streets um, for racial justice. And and so I I think that probably scares McConnell a lot more than uh, kind of a centrist uh McGrath would so and and like it's I said it's hard to say cuz you know you yeah. don't i mean Kentucky's got a, a fairly substantial conservative white population and you know to what extent racial politics play into this i have no idea uh, Amy Grant McGrath is is white Booker is black i if at all i mean you know in, in some races all these issues just you know kind of transcend race it's going to be interesting to watch, Jeff. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, you're asking the right questions, and you know, we'll probably have the answers either tonight or in the next couple of days as the uh, mail-in ballots come in. Uh, fascinating times we live in, to say the very least. And welcome back, Tom Hartman here with you, Steve in uh, Noblesville, Indiana. Hey, Steve, what's up? Oh, not too much. Uh, the question I got is on the Twelfth Amendment. If he gets the House to elect him through the Twelfth Amendment. Right. That's the only one that can get elected through the, the representatives and the Senate. In that case, if we can get the House and the Senate control, we can make it miserable for him. Yeah. Well, there is that, Steve. There is that. But see, I'm concerned that if Donald Trump gets reelected, 
particularly if he uses the 12th Amendment, that it will produce a huge outcry. He will respond to that huge outcry with a military crackdown and it will fracture the republic. And this would be a, a, a very, very dangerous time, a very critical time. I just, you know... Well, I don't, uh, really, I don't really think that the military will go against the people. Uh, they sure did in, in Lafayette Square just a week ago. Yeah, but uh, that was just a handful of them. Another thing is I don't think he's going to live long enough because of his health and stuff. I think well, he's going to you know, be we'll, gone before the first of the year. It, we'll see. I, you know, I, I, I don't know about uh, Donald Trump's health. Uh, Steve, thank you for the call. And I, I'm very uh, reluctant to speculate on, on uh, uh, things as, you know, associated with the president uh, leaving this earth. Um, he is putting himself at considerable risk with these COVID rallies that he's holding. <laughs> so I don't know. We'll see how it shakes out. Charles in Miami. Hey, Charles, what's up? Oh, what's going on? Listen, you're right in my wheelhouse today. You are in the back of my mind. Um, okay. When you start saying, when you start, I, I, I was listening to some of the broadcasts this weekend, and it hit me that no wonder they were saying that um, with Obama there wasn't, uh, or there was, there wasn't going to be a peaceful transition of power because of these investigations or whatever. And I just, think, I just see that as them projecting. You know, they, mm-hmm. you know, they talk about civil war and all of this mess, and you know, they, they, they're trying to destroy this government from within. And I can see a Donald Trump because you heard what Michael Cohen said. This is not going to be a peaceful transition. And I think we're missing. They, 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 they lay these little traps, and you know, they put this in the back of people's minds, and that's when they do it. You know, um, and yeah. last but not least, I do have a question for you, Tom. Um, I'm mm-hmm. sick and tired of watching Donald Trump and this coronavirus thing. It's a whole setup by him. But what I'm what I'm thinking is, they was already saying that um, um, America should be forced into herd immunity, or America should accept herd immunity, and I think they forced it on us. Well, you know, without mm-hmm. our consent, all of this is herd immunity by this Republican Party. And I just want to know when, when, when all the dust settles, when the Democrats become get back in power, do we, you know, try to put these guys up for for crimes against this American um, society because they're killing innocent people? This Donald Trump's hands and the Republicans' hands is full of blood, and if there's, there's not going to be any justice for what they're doing, then we might as well hang it up because. As Democrats, we, we not only have to stand up for what was, what's right, but we also have to put our foot down and show, let them know that when we're in power, we're going to use the law against them. So a lot of things that they're doing today is because Nancy Pelosi, um, Chuck Schumer, Harry Reid, to me, in my opinion, laid down a couple of times when they had to stand up and fight. And, um, you know, this is a constant battle with them. They're never going to give up. They have money. They lost power, and that's the only thing that's important to them. But there's no repercussions for um, the Supreme Court giving the victory to um, Bush Jr. instead of Al Gore. There's no, you know, there's no peace because we're in the Middle East on false pretenses looking for WMDs. You know, all of this stuff yeah. that they've been getting away with, we're also aiding in a bit. 
Yeah, Bush, Bush, Bush set this all back. up. Yeah, no, I, I, I got it, Charles. And I'm, I'm not expecting that uh, they're going to be held accountable for the coronavirus any more than uh, Rick Snyder, the governor of Michigan, was held accountable for his role and the role of his underlings in poisoning the people of Flint, Michigan. It's, you know, government policy that kills people very rarely uh, ends up being being held accountable, frankly. And in fact, it's very, very difficult to do, in particular because of this 1982 Supreme Court decision that not just gave qualified immunity to police, but to all government officials. In fact, police weren't even mentioned in the, in the, in the opinion at the time. But this is the direction, you know, this, this is the way things are going. Uh, the U.S. Commission on International and Religious Freedom, this is a government agency, federal government. I just got this uh, press release, went out to the press. The U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom condemned Turkey's latest raid of airstrikes and ground operations, Operation Eagle Claw and Claw Tiger, near civilian areas in northern Iraq. It turns out what, what these guys are complaining about, what our government is complaining about, although I guarantee you Trump won't be because he owns two properties in Turkey, which is why he's constantly sucking up to Erdogan, and it's why uh, Bill Barr is trying to stop this prosecution of the Turkish bank by the, by the Southern District of New York. They're saying that Turkey is targeting the Kurds and they are bombing in close proximity to towns and camps with displaced Yazidi families. And, uh, you know, their conclusion, Turkey's operations in Iraq and northeastern Syria make it clear that regional ambitions, not domestic security, are driving its actions today. And it cannot be allowed to do so with impunity. So here we have an agency of the federal government calling out Turkey for slaughtering civilians for political purposes. And it's not, you know, the news is not talking about it. Obviously, Trump is not talking about it. I mean, there, there's some just horrific stuff coming out of this administration and their friends. You're like listening Erdogan. to the Tom Hartman program. I wanted to talk briefly about Audrey Strauss. When Jeffrey Berman was fired by Bill Barr, Jeffrey Berman was the lead prosecutor for the Southern District of New York, the federal prosecutor. And the reason he was first put into place, and I think Donald Trump thought, this is a gimme, right? This is going to be easy because, you know, Trump's concern, the reason why he fired Preet Prahara, who was the former prosecutor, who I believe had been put there by Obama, the reason he fired Preet Prahara was because Preet had the power to investigate the Trump companies. If you're the federal prosecutor in Alabama, you can look into companies in Alabama. Well, if you're the federal prosecutor for Manhattan, you can look into companies headquartered in Manhattan. And that is like, hey, the Trump organization. And uh, so when Preet Prahara started making noises like that, Donald Trump got rid of him and replaced him with Jeffrey Berman, who is a lifelong Republican and had been on the Trump transition team. Jeffrey Berman was, you know, a loyal Trumpista and Republican. And so Trump put him in as head prosecutor. And then Jeffrey Berman asked Audrey Strauss, who is now 71 years old, to come out of retirement and join him in the Southern District of New York. Now, he's the guy, this is the guy, Jeffrey Berman, even though he was on the Trump transition team, he has decided to be an actual prosecutor. And he went after Michael Cohen. He's the one who named Donald Trump as the unindicted co-conspirator in the campaign finance violation plot to pay off Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Donald Trump ordered the federal felony 
that Michael Cohen is in jail for. So obviously Trump should be in jail. So anyhow, Berman said, okay, you know, we're going to look into some of this stuff. He's looking into the Trump organization. He's looking into the Trump taxes. He's looking into all kinds of stuff. And so he gets fired. And now comes his number two. Now, keep in mind, Bill Barr was trying to keep, and his number two is Audrey Strauss. Bill Barr was trying to keep Audrey Strauss out of that position. And that's why he wanted Jay Clayton in there, the guy who's, you know, a corporate lawyer, friendly corporate lawyer, you know, over at the Securities and Exchange Commission. Never been a prosecutor, has no interest in being a prosecutor, loyal Republican and all this kind of stuff. But because Barr screwed it up so badly, he didn't get the guy that he wanted. And instead, he's going to have Audrey Strauss. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Those of you who are regular listeners to this program or who regularly read the op-eds that I publish over on Alternet and Raw Story and Common Dreams and BuzzFlash and all the, these other uh, progressive sites that carry my stuff, know that one of the things that I've been pointing out for the better part of a year since Bill Barr was made essentially the head of the Justice Department as Attorney General, one of the things that I've been pointing out is that back in 1992, when Bill Barr was the Attorney General for George Herbert Walker Bush, it was Bill Barr who put an end to the Iran-Contra investigation, which was a get-out-of-jail-free card for George H.W. Bush and for Ronald Reagan. I mean, they, they had already convicted Casper Weinberger. And they had already convicted Oliver North and, and three other guys, and they were going after a few others. And Bill Barr advised then-President Bush, just pardon them, and that'll shut down the investigation. And Lawrence Walsh, who was the prosecutor, was you know screaming headline in the New York Times on Christmas Day of 1992, cover-up. Well, it was a cover-up that was organized by Bill Barr. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Two of the investigators who are working with the Iran-Contra investigation that Congress was running, two of the investigators with regard to Iran-Contra specifically were Jeffrey Berman and Audrey Strauss back in 92. I think this is like the most important piece of the whole context that's been completely missed by the press. I saw this, I just caught this, I just learned this myself from a piece in the New York Times by Benjamin Weiser, Nicole Hong, and uh, Ben Protest. The headline, Trump fired her boss, now she's taking cases that incensed the White House. And the subhead, Audrey Strauss, is behind the scenes forced in the U.S. Attorney Office in Manhattan as it pursued cases against people connected to Trump. But on page four of this article, as I printed it out, it says, Ms. Strauss and Mr. Berman have known each other for at least three decades. They worked together in the late 1980s on the Independent Counsel's investigation into the Iran-Contra scandal. I said for Congress. It was for uh, Lawrence Walsh for the Independent Counsel. It's really starting to fall together. And, and frankly, I think that if you're planning on prosecuting Trump when he gets out of office, like January 21st, the day after he's replaced by Joe Biden, if you're planning on prosecuting him that day, and you're the federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, which is the guy who's got all the dirt on Trump, you need to start making your case right now in July of 2020. Because it takes six, eight months to prepare a federal case against somebody as high profile as Donald Trump. So this is just my theory, 
But this is a guy who participated, and Audrey Strauss, the one who's now taking his place, participated in prosecuting George Bush and Ronald Reagan as Bush was about to leave office, which is why he did the pardon. He was afraid he himself was going to go to jail. And so my personal theory here, and we'll see if this plays out, is that Strauss and Berman were starting to set up the prosecution of Donald Trump and perhaps Bill Barr for crimes committed while in office and before in office. And that's why Bill Barr had to decapitate that You're office. Listening to the Tom Hartman program. And he screwed it up and Audrey Strauss is still going to be coming after him. So she's the one you got to keep an eye on. If he can get rid of her, he's safe. If he can't, he's screwed. Asha Rangappa is going off on Bill Barr over on Twitter. Bully Barr, he calls him. He says, you lied about their contents of the Mueller report, redacted material in the Mueller report that revealed that Trump did collude. By the way, we just saw that in the last few days. Interfered with the sentencing of Roger Stone. Worked to try to get the case against Michael Flynn for treason dropped. Dropping the case against Russia, which attacked the U.S. by classifying information to prosecute Russian defendants. Barr testified he doesn't believe that foreign assistance to a campaign is even a crime. Had his Office of Legal Counsel justify blocking a whistleblower complaint. Oversaw his criminal division deciding that secretly extorting a foreign country to investigate a political opponent would not constitute a violation of campaign finance laws. Started an investigation of the investigators into the links between Trump and Russia. Talk about intimidation. Tear-gassed peaceful protesters and clergy members in violation of the First Amendment in front of the church there by the White House. And then lied about it to the press. Has yet to mention the right-wing extremists, the most dangerous domestic terror threat, as testified to by the director of the FBI. But meanwhile, has taken the Joint Terrorism Task Force and said, uh, look into Antifa instead. He's fired the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, the guy who, among other things, indicted Donald Trump, or un- Donald Trump was the unindicted co-conspirator, federal felony crime for which Michael Cohen is in jail, paying off Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Trump was the guy who ordered that. This prosecutor was also investigating the co-conspirators of Jeffrey Epstein. By the way, uh, Bill Barr's dad gave Epstein his first job teaching kids, and his dad wrote a bizarre novel about sex trafficking in space. I mean, it just doesn't get weirder than this. So sometime back, Jimmy Lohman wrote a piece back, I think it was in the 90s. This was when Bill Barr was the first time he was attorney general, that this guy is a bully. And he ended his piece for the Daily Beast, a more recent piece with, I even hesitated to air my childhood grievances with him because they're so trivial and petty compared to the destruction he's wreaked on the vital institutions that sustain our democratic way of life. Serious stuff, serious stuff. And that same Jimmy Lohman, who was bullied by Bill Barr as a child, is now a grown-up lawyer and, and has been writing about this. And he's on the air with us, Jimmy Lohman. James C-L-O-H-M-A-N number one is his Twitter handle. Jimmy, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Tom. It's great to be with you. First of all, I'm, I'm curious, your, you know, if you want to recap for us your experience with uh, Bill Barr as a bully, I think probably this is a universal experience. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, I had a bully in school. His, his name was Dennis, and he used to beat me up whenever he could, you know, corner me. And when he wasn't beating me up, he was threatening me, uh, particularly in front of other kids. And not just me. There were several other kids that he, that he liked to pick on. There seems to be this bully mentality that has permeated the White House now. Your thoughts on all that? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that about your own experience, because what happened was in 1991, which was like 20, God, he graduated high school in 67, two years before me. So we're talking 24 years after that. I hadn't even given a thought to the man. I come to find out that George Bush Sr. has nominated him to be attorney general. So imagine you're sitting around and you find out that Dennis has been nominated to be attorney general of the country. Right. I mean, My bully, yes. It's just, <laughs> it was just, you know, totally shocking. I mean, here's this guy who was, who was I don't know, I don't know what the... Um, whether you're allowed to use the seven, you know, forbidden words on podcasts. No, you can't. Yeah, imagine, imagine all of them. Imagine all of them. I mean, it was just a shocking, a shocking moment. It conjured my experiences with him that I hadn't thought about for so long, which basically was this. I've run all this down in my original 1991 column that I, I uh, submitted to a local campus paper in Tallahassee, the Florida State University affiliated paper in Florida Flambeau. Actually, it's independent of the university, but serves that community. And I felt like I needed to share, at least with my local citizens, what an atrocity this guy was in our youth. For one thing, there was no explanation for why he would have singled me out as a kid two years behind him, who he didn't even know, other than the fact that I wore pro-civil rights buttons. And so he and, and this other friend of his you know, used to threaten me and intimidate me, uh, you know, scowl at me, kind of. I had to be on the lookout for them in the hallway, basically, because, you know, they'd bump into me when they went past. And basically, they just kind of were menacing. And mm -hmm. I did my best to stay out of their way. Then it turns out that I went to college two years behind far also. I went to the same college to Columbia University in New York City. When I got to campus, come to find out that he's already earned a reputation on the Columbia campus for lining up with the New York City riot police to attack anti-war protesters. Remember, we're talking 1969 now, the height of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. My second semester of college was Kent State. So it was a very volatile time on campuses. And Barr was notorious for teaming up with the riot police to attack protesters. And in fact, he has bragged about this in recent interviews both an interview with Politico, and I also was reading another story where he was bragging about the fact that they sent, quote, more than a dozen protesters to the hospital. Actually, it was a New York Times Magazine um, story that came out a couple of weeks ago, a very, very in-depth article about Barr, where he tells the Times writer with a smirk that they were beating up protesters and they sent more than a dozen to the hospital. Wow. So he doesn't even deny being a violent person. As an attorney, as, a, as somebody who knows Bill Barr and as somebody who's a fairly astute observer of the political scene, what are your thoughts on bullying as politics? It seems to me like everybody in the White House who has survived, Mike Pompeo, Bill Barr, Mick Mulvaney, these guys are bullies. They were bullies as kids in all probability. We know now that Donald Trump was a bully as a child. Do we now have an administration full of bullies? It appears that way, although they certainly all cower to Trump. I mean, they don't act like... But isn't that characteristic of bullies? It's the, it's the kiss-up, kick-down syndrome. Tough. Yeah, exactly. It's a pecking order. I mean, they're bullies in the way they do things. They bully, they bully agencies. They bully underlings. They, I mean, they just think the world is, is theirs to push around. This is part of the crisis that we're experiencing as a nation. 
you know, when Trump was talking about what he could do to women. I think that was, you know, a, a dimension of his own of his own bullying. Mm -hmm. um, I don't recall any administration that was like that. I mean, maybe the Nixon administration was and I just didn't get it. But it seems like other administrations have had more respect for the rule of law and and uh, appropriate political conduct. Or am I wrong? I don't remember any gang of thugs to this extent at all. Nothing close. So you don't seem to think and Melania is going to be able to calm down the bullying, huh? No, I, you know, she and, and her son both have uh, dual Slovenian citizenship. I think they're going to get out of town as soon as Trump leaves the White House. Maybe so. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Uh, Jimmy Lohman, lawyer and the former schoolmate of, of Bill Barr. Jimmy, thanks for dropping by. It's great talking to you. My pleasure, Tom. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. This is the Tom Hartman Program. What a fascinating time we live in, isn't it? Hey, we're putting together a series of American history books. It started with a hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican War on voting. Coming out soon is the hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then next spring, it's going to be the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny. So just to amplify this point, this is in the Michael Flynn case where the, quote, ultra-Trumpy judge, Naomi, Naomi Rao, basically said, no, you got to let Mike Flynn go right now. Let him go. I mean, he's not in custody anyway, but hey, let's, let's let him go. Now, remember when... Um, when the uh, never Trump legal conservatives were saying, now this is this is like you know the Bill Crystal crowd, the never Trump conservatives who show up, you know, like uh, David Jolly, who show up on MSNBC and trash Donald Trump, but then say, oh, isn't it wonderful? All these conservative judges being put on in lifetime appointments. Mark Joseph Stern tweets, the never Trump conservatives said, quote, you can oppose Trump and still support Trump's judicial nominees because Leonard Leo, he's the head of the legal society, the, you know, the, the Federalist Society that, that through the ranks of which come these young conservatives when they've been blessed by the Kochs and whatnot. You can oppose Trump and still support Trump's judicial nominees because Leonard Leo selected the finest, most independent legal minds of the nation who are sure to act as a check on this administration. Right. 
She actually, uh, Naomi Rao, this super Trumpy judge who's been, only been on the court a short while, she's you know one of the more recent appointees. She didn't even say, we're saying let Mike Flynn go because of the law. She instead invented this thing. She said that uh, Judge Sullivan, the guy who, you know, the judge who said, wait a minute, we're not going to let you drop this case, Bill Barr. He's already pled guilty or pleaded guilty. If he has already pleaded guilty, we have to proceed with sentencing. You can't just undo that. You can't unring that bell. It's already happened in court, in front of this court, in front of me as a judge. You can't undo that. And she made no legal argument about that. Instead, she said that, um, that what that constituted was, quote, unprecedented intrusions on individual liberty. Asserted that it was absolutely wrong that Judge Solomon, quote, dared to probe the government's motives. Mark Joseph Stern goes on to say, I don't see why the D.C. Circuit Court can't take this case in bonk to, to reverse route. That's all 11. But I need a civil procedure person to tell me if there are different en banc rules for mandamus petitions. This was filed as a writ of mandamus, which is like urgent, urgent, do this in the courts. Yeah, he goes on to say, I would expect to see a move to en banc, having all active judges hear the case. Oh, that was Joyce Vance who said that this is, you know, a clear case of bad faith by the DOJ and went on to say, I fully expect the D.C. Circuit to step in and correct this mistake. This is Christina Farias. And then for the Supreme Court to leave this case alone, we'll see, you know, how badly corrupted has our political system become. Anyhow, let's pick up your phone calls here. Lawrence in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hey, Lawrence, thanks for listening to KTNF. What's up? Tom, what, what, what are we doing here as, as Democrats? Every day we sit here and talk about what this guy's doing. We're not doing ourselves any favors as, as Democrats. We're, we're actually losing. And if we keep this up, we're going to lose. Uh, Lawrence, that's simply not the case. The fact, I mean, look at the, look at what just came, came down in terms of the election results. I mean, you know, these primaries, the, the, not only are Democrats winning, progressives are winning inside the Democratic Party. Yesterday, by the way, Jill Biden name-checked both Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. I see this as a good sign, two of the most progressive. You know, I'm not sure I want, you know, Susan Rice is a fine person and all that, but she's not a progressive, not even close. I, you know, I, I just completely disagree with you. Sorry. Mike in Hope Sound, Florida. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, Tom, pleasure. But I want to talk about my one key issue, which is always the same, Trump and dog whistles. And you started mentioning the words he was using in that speech, and that was a symphony of racist lies and dog whistles. And I want to remind every American, everybody who pretends to be a Christian, everyone who pretends to be a patriot, look back in history, look at Joe McCarthy. Donald Trump is as evil as Joe McCarthy was and as ignorant. But Trump is. And keep in mind, Roy Cohn was Joe McCarthy's lawyer. Roy Cohn was Donald Trump's lawyer. Geez, why are you stealing my thunder, Tom? (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, Mike. Were you building up to that? (laughs) No, I was just going to say that Joe McCarthy needed Roy Cohn because of the brains. And now we have the two of them in one human being who was elected by Americans to lead this country. If no, he was actually elected by the by the by the uh, yeah. uh, electoral college. Yeah. I mean, oh, I was going to say he was I mean. elected by the Russians, but uh, you know, it goes beyond that. You know, the Saudis were involved in this. The there were some Israeli oh. oligarchs involved in this. 
Go ahead. Let's not let's not forget the key person, the people that got him elected. The people that got him elected was the Republican establishment, the Republican Party, and every voter who didn't stand up against him. And that includes non-voters who are a huge part of this country. Uh, I tell everybody, if you don't want to study history, if you don't want to study Joe McCarthy and McCarthyism, you don't want to study what Roy Cohn did to this country, you think, I never thought growing up through Nixon and John Mitchell that we would ever see a worse attorney general than John Mitchell. And lo and behold, Nixon and Mitchell are looking like saints right about now. It's the worst I've ever seen. And I see the worst in these supporters that continue. And that includes every supporter who says to me, go ahead. Well, here's the good news, Mike. Uh, you know what happened to John Mitchell. Finish your thought about though. He, he yeah. was saying we got about a minute. He got he got too little jail time, and <laughs> but he did go yeah. to jail, and uh, that was a different time too. We had Republicans in the early '70s who actually did have a conscience, and that has gone away. But I will say this: I live in Florida, and I'm constantly mm-hmm. inundated with people that are burning masks and calling it an infringement on their liberty, and I push back mm-hmm. directly. Uh, I will not stand for it. I'm an American, but I'm a human being as well, and I use my God-given brain. So get out and vote, people, and don't vote for third party if you don't have a chance. Vote for the Democrats. At least this time, do something for the country. Yeah, let's not uh, piss away our votes, as the uh, old semi-obscene saying goes. And right. uh, you know, this is no time to waste your vote on on right. uh, on, a, on any third party, frankly, and and. Uh, you know, and and yeah, we can all sit around and talk about our long litany of complaints about the Democratic Party. But you know, if we don't if we don't get inside that party and change it, uh, you know, we lose basically our right to complain. Mike, thanks for the call. Well said. Mick in Seattle. Hey, Mick, what's up? I'm uh, really glad to hear you when you rant and rave. I love it because sometimes you, you're spot on. This this time you said something I'd like clarification on. You said, I'd like to know where you got the necessitant man, I hope I'm saying that right, is not free. And I love the fact that you said that. In 1933, in uh, in March of 1933, when Franklin Roosevelt was sworn in and he gave his inaugural address, the one where he famously said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Um, He also said, an old English judge once said, a necessitous man is not a free man. And, and then he goes on to, to chronicle essentially what I said. So that's, that's where it came from. And then uh, in 1936, when uh, Roosevelt gave his famous speech, um, I believe it was in Philadelphia, where he accepted his renomination to, to, you know, for a second term, uh, he quoted himself. <laughs> he said, necessitous men are not free. He didn't, he didn't quote the old English judge that time. But that's where it came from, Mick. Thank you for sharing that with me and the rest of us. You're welcome. Thanks a lot for the call. It's nice to hear from you. Uh, Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, what's up? Yeah, hi. Well, I'm glad the conversation's kind of gone back to uh, that period of time when I was about 14 or 15, 16, the late 60s, early 70s. And I wanted to ask you a question, Tom. During that time, would you have thought that someone like, well, you probably wouldn't have thought that Nixon might have gotten elected, or reelected, or that Reagan might have been um, elected. But um, did you think that people from our first half of the baby boomer generation would end up voting for someone like Reagan by 1980? Because my sister did. 
She was a yeah. real hippie in the late 60s. Yeah. There was there was a uh, you know I think the election of '68 is very different from the election of 1980. The election of '68, uh, when when uh, uh, Richard Nixon took power, was really all about Vietnam and about the failure of Lyndon Johnson to end the war in Vietnam. And it turns out that Lyndon Johnson actually had ended the war in Vietnam, and Richard right. Nixon inserted himself into that process, told the, North, uh, told the South Vietnamese, just hang on, don't go along with this, and I'll make you rich. And so, you know, Nixon committed treason. In 1980, right. though, the, the, and so we just didn't know. We thought that uh, we were ousting a corrupt and incompetent, warmongering Democratic uh, candidate, Hubert Humphrey, the vice president to LBJ, um, and replacing him with a Republican who had spent eight years as the vice president of Dwight Eisenhower, who was widely beloved and who had ended the Korean War. And Richard Nixon ran as an anti-war candidate in 68. So we thought he was going to end the war. And then in 72, when he ran for re-election, he again said he was going to end the war. He had a secret plan, you'll recall. But in 1980, you had, you know, we had these twin oil shocks in the in the in the 1970s um, that uh, I believe they were three or four years apart and they were the result of the Arabs basically freaking out about Israel and so we had inflation we had a recession you had the, the hostages being held by Iran we didn't know again that uh, Reagan's campaign had cut a deal with the Iranians to hold the hostages all the way up to the day to the literally to the minute that Reagan put his hand on the Bible and so people thought, I, actually, I'd say in both cases, Dennis, people thought they were voting for a better America. Uh, Dennis, thanks for the call. And uh, welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Adam in Youngstown, Ohio. Hey, Adam, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I got a question that dates back to basically the beginning of your show. You were talking about uh, the Mike, like, uh, let's say, Flynn and Roger Stone, and then you've got people like Michael Cohen as well. But I started really getting into politics around the Bush-Cheney time, whenever they were ruining America. And it seemed like with the Republicans in charge, whenever it's a Republican presidency and administration, and this may go back to Nixon, there seems to be like an inner circle. Like for Bush and Cheney, it was those two, and then it was Condoleezza Rice and Donald Rumsfeld. But outside of the circle, you had people like Scooter Libby and John Yu, and that idiot from Blackwater. And there's a lot of indictments, and there's a lot of people going to prison. I guess during Reagan's two terms, there were 188 people that were either... Yeah, more, more people went to, went to prison for corruption during the Reagan administration than any administration in the history of the United States. Yeah, and it seems like this goes all the way back to Nixon. It may go back mm -hmm. further than that. But is is that the way it always seems to be? It seems like a reoccurring theme. And the last time I remember from, like, what I remember from Obama is just Fox News trying to convince everybody that Shirley Sherrod is a racist and Eric Holder is evil. And there's no indictments. Right. But every time we have a Republican presidency... There just seems to be like this group of untouchables that nothing's going to happen to them. And then you've got people outside of that fold that are trying to get into that room, and they end up the John Hughes, the Scooter Libby's, the Michael Cohen's. Yeah. Well, they were, they were semi-insiders. But, you know, what's going on here, Adam, and it's fairly easy to identify. In fact, uh, Rachel Maddow's producer, Steve Bennon, uh, was on the show earlier 
uh, I heard that interview this week or late last week. Yeah, and he wrote a book about this. Um, uh, this is not his take, though. This is my take, uh, and I'm not, I haven't read his book, so it may differ uh, differ from his uh, perspective. But basically, I think that um, prior to 19, really 1965 or 64, um, the principal difference between the Democratic and Republican parties was. Uh, were, you know, the, the differences were relatively small. Harry, Harry Truman and Franklin Roosevelt, um, you know, were very much the party of labor. And um, uh, the Republican Party was very much the party of business. But they were the party of Main Street business, of, you know, the dry cleaners down the street business. Uh, the cloth coat Republicans is how they were referred to. Um, how Richard Nixon, you know, talking about his wife, uh, uh, Pat, and the coat she had. She owns a good cloth coat, that, you know, the checkers speech. And so, what, but what happened in, in 64, 65, was uh, leveraging the death of John Kennedy, uh, Lyndon Johnson got past the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And the Democratic Party rejected racism as a governing principle. The Republican Party the, then rushed into the embrace racism. The Dixiecrats over to the other side? That's correct. The Dixiecrats, okay. Strom Thurmond, these guys, these Dixiecrats, they all became Republicans in the 60s, in the late 60s, early 70s. And um, so, number one, the Republican Party became basically the official party of racism. And number two, they, in the process, basically abandoned any governing principles. They ceased in the 60s, and the Nixon presidency was the first example of this, ceased to be a governing party that had any core philosophical beliefs that were positive beliefs. Their, their beliefs were all basically, we're here for the rich people, we are the rich people, we're here for money and power, period, full stop. And the Democrats were still saying, we're the party for the people, we're still the party of labor, we're the party of pluralistic societies and, and things like that. And they're still willing to govern. And yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, because they can get more money and power by governing the, Repu the Republicans. Um, you know, and the Democrats are still talking about what's best for America and what's best for the people. And it's basically been that way since, since 1968, since the next Nixon presidency. You're absolutely right, Adam, and you've identified it. The Republican Party is basically nothing more than a party of grifters, a party of... And of, that, because uh, you know, of that, you end up with everybody racing to the top to be in a Republican administration, and then the corruption shows up. That's right. Unreal. Yeah, because corruption right, is you, their governing principle. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and by the way, there's a small portion of the Democratic Party that has thrown in with this as well. You find it more these days regionally, um, although there are, you know, there are still some Democrats who are, you know, basically in it for themselves and their buddies. But the Democratic Party has never embraced this as a governing principle, you know, writ large. Um, they they flirted with it a lot during the Clinton and, uh, administration, but they never embraced it. Halliburton and Blackwater. Yeah, it's all it's all one thing. It's all one thing. Yeah, exactly right. Adam, thanks for the call. Um, but you nailed it. Thanks for being with us today. What a day. What a day. I, I'm looking forward to seeing the clips from the congressional testimony today and seeing if uh, Congress will ever get its uh, courage and act together to impeach Attorney General Bill Barr. It really needs to be done. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there, get active, tag your it, 
And please, these are tough times. Be nice to the people around you. Be kind and considerate. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 